I think most of you are probably aware that a number of years ago, I taught in a Christian school, and um, this was in a day in which schools were still allowed to use corporal punishment. And I may have told you this before, but there was an event that took place where um, I was actually monitoring the cafeteria at the time. And in that cafeteria, I had to leave for a few minutes because I had to address something out in the hallway. But when I came back in, seven of the students had engaged in a food fight. And so after identifying them, I marched them right down to the office and proceeded to lay three wax on each of them. And I honestly got a tennis elbow doing this. Um, at the end of it, one of the fellas, and I, I, I will never forget his name, Herb Westenbarger, he looked at me and he threw his arms around me and he said, Thank you for caring. I know, that's, that's, I mean, that's bizarre. Except that he knew the truth. You can discipline people, even extremely. And, but let me just say this. Abuse is not extreme discipline. It is sin and it is illegal. But there is a proper way to apply corporal punishment. Teachers can do it in love. Well, we can't anymore because of the law. But do parents have that right? Not only do they have the right, they have the responsibility. Listen to what the Lord said in the book of Proverbs, chapter 13, verse 24. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. There is an appropriate way to administer corporal punishment. And I know within a congregation this size, different people are going to have different perspectives on this. And I would just suggest that probably the best way for us to evaluate how we do these things is from God's word and not from the pressures of society. But also remember that it's done lovingly for the purpose of correction, not beating. Here's another thing that I know. Whenever God disciplines us, he disciplines us because he loves us. The writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews chapter 12. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And I'm reading beginning in verse 5. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seeming best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I know that there are people who would argue that the chastening or the chastisement, or the discipline that is administered in a physical sense to someone, 
the argument would be that you you are um, stifling the individuality of an individual. You you should speak to them on uh, rational terms. Um, there there is a sense in which it's inappropriate because a person loses their sense of self worth when they are disciplined in a rather severe way. And God's word says that's not true. Discipline that is appropriately applied is corrective, and it has a very positive influence. Today, we are at a portion of God's word that is difficult to deal with. And it's difficult for this reason, not because it's unclear, it's very clear, but because many churches have decided to abandon 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't know the reasons. Could it be that the feeling is if a church exercises discipline, it will diminish its numbers, which seem to be kind of at the heart of what many churches believe is success? And maybe that would be the reason. Maybe it's because those who would be responsible for exercising discipline recognize the weaknesses and failures within themselves. And so it's much easier not to exercise church discipline than it is to do it and for the right reasons. If we are going to be a church that is based upon the word of God, we may not, we may not ignore 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is an essential part of the life of any church that wants to be pleasing to the Lord. And so we turn to this passage of Scripture, recognizing a variety of different things related to church discipline. And there are churches that do discipline individuals, and this will be one of them, because it is what God directs us to do. Would you take your Bibles once again and go back there with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, And look at this instruction that Paul gives. You remember we said when we started this series in 1 Corinthians that Paul was going to be addressing a number of different problems that the church at Corinth had. The first problem he addressed was the divisiveness that existed among the body. And he told them how to take care of that, how to bring people back together in unity. Now he's going to deal with this issue of what happens if there is one within the church who is involved in sin... And that sin becomes leaven, and you all know he's speaking about the the yeast that you put into a dough pile that begins to permeate its way through the rest of the dough. You, You just put a little bit of yeast in there, then it begins to permeate, and before you know it, the whole lump, as it's described here in 1 Corinthians 5, the whole lump is leavened, which in God's word, almost exclusively, not totally, but almost exclusively, represents the presence of sin and its capability to spread through the body. Not only does it spread through the body, but it causes a church to become ineffective. Because the world will look at the church and say, if you're no different than we, why should we consider what you believe to be the truth? There better be a difference. There better be ways in which we evaluate ourselves on a very different plane than what the world does in evaluating itself. And in addition to that, I think sometimes churches will refuse to follow these injunctions because they are blinded by spiritual pride. There is almost this sense in which 
We are something special, and we are, but we're only special because of what the Lord has made us, and we are only special when we obey the Lord. Then we are a unique people set aside for his purpose and for his design. Sometimes I think we just don't like the the work that comes along with rooting out evil. Now let me begin by saying this. I don't believe it's ever the church's responsibility to become detectives and to go looking for sin in people's lives. But I do believe it's appropriate when sin is evident and it comes to the the attention of the church that there is sin that is being involved in the body, the church has to take some action. And so we turn to the scriptures to find out what course of action the Lord wants us to take and what is our responsibility. And the first is this. It's the responsibility of the church to judge a sinning brother. Now, there are restrictions on the way churches judge. The the Lord has made it clear that it is inappropriate to judge the motives of a person's heart. Sometimes you do something, you have the best intentions, and somehow it doesn't work out too well. Have you, have you ever been involved in something like that? You really have the best intentions, but then just the way circumstances unfold, it, it turns out wrong, or maybe you're just misunderstood, and a person thinks one thing, but you meant something else. And the Lord says, no, listen, you don't have the right to look into a person's heart and judge that heart. That's why if you just look back here at chapter 4, and and go down to uh, verse 5 where it says this, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. God's the only one who has the capability to judge motives. And we are restricted from judging in areas of questionable behavior. Now, when I say questionable, I don't mean like sinful behavior that somebody looks at and says, well, I don't know that that's all a big deal. But I do mean something like this. Within the realm of Christianity, those of us who are raised in a very conservative and in some cases a very legalistic background, and I would suspect there's probably a good number of you who have been raised in that environment. Many of you have not. But those of you who have, do you remember how when you were growing up, it was always terrible sin to smoke, right? If you smoked, you couldn't be a Christian. It was a terrible sin to use alcohol in any form. And that was usually expressed by a pastor who the night before drank a half a bottle of NyQuil. I'm kidding. It was always a sin to play cards. It was always a sin to go to movies. It was always a sin to dance. You you all know what I'm talking about with this, right? Can all of those things be sin? Sure, they all can be sin. But there, there is an understanding that different people are going to see things in a very different light. Is it always wrong to go to a movie? Well, here's the argument I hear. Now, see, you know know what this is called out here? Thin ice. (laughs) And I'm starting to walk out in this direction. But you you can reject what I'm saying here if you wish. But I know this. The Lord says some people are going to observe days and others aren't. Don't judge each other. Be convinced in your own heart which is right. 
Is it wrong to go to movies? There are those who I'm sure you would raise your hand and say, yes, it's sinful to go to movies, but yet you'll watch movies on TV and you will buy products of the advertisers who put it there, but your argument would be if you go to a movie, you're paying the industry and it's all bad, and I look at that and I say, that's hypocrisy. Okay? Uh, and, and I need the ushers. Could you guys just stand in the doorways so people don't start running out? Um, playing cards. Some people were raised in homes that were horribly impacted by um, gambling. And so they would look at cards and say, those are the devil's cards. And they make reference to things that the, the, uh, the face cards have references to, to different evil things. I, I don't understand all the arguments, but they use the same one at Christmas time. They use the same one at other seasons of the year to say those are pagan things. But other people look at it and say, no, this is a game. Those, those cards mean nothing to me, and I don't gamble my money away. And to, for me to sit down and play some cards with somebody, that's no big deal. So instead, what we've done is we've made Uno cards, and we've made Rook cards, and we still play a lot of the same games. We just... Don't have those evil devil cards in our hands. And then dancing. Do you understand that most of us don't dance, not because it's a sin, but because we can't? (laughs) The use of alcohol. I think it's unwise to use alcohol. Is it wrong? No, it's wrong to be drunk. It's wrong to cause a brother to stumble. And if you use alcohol in such a way that another person becomes involved in that but can't stop, you have become a stumbling block. So there's a variety of different ways to look at things. And God says, wait a minute. Like eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Some of you with strong conscience could do that, but those of you with a weak conscience, to you it's sin. So those of you with a strong conscience, look at those with a weak conscience and understand that you probably shouldn't eat that meat when you would have any influence or impact upon them. So for the weaker brother, you deny yourself. And that's right, but it's not right to sin by saying... Everything I do is okay and everything somebody else does is wrong. And some of you would probably look at me and say, Pastor, do you play cards? Yeah, I do. And you would say, well, then you're in sin. Mm, I don't think I am. But anyway, do I dance? (laughs) I did at my daughter's wedding. And I'll only dance with my wife unless it's a line dance. Anyway, you you all get the point, right? Okay, so those things we don't judge. But what God has judged, we judge. And in this case, there is a man in the church at Corinth who has taken his father's wife, his stepmother, and he has had intimate relations with her. God had made it clear with a very brief statement in the book of Deuteronomy, it is sin for a man to take his father's wife. God has judged it. Now it's the responsibility of the church to act because I really believe God does not do 
for us what he directs us to do ourselves. And so he places in the hands of the church the responsibility to bring judgment. But here's the deal. It has to be done with the right spirit. Look at what the Lord says in verse 2. And you are puffed up. Wait a minute. After this brother is sinning in such a horrible way, you're puffed up? What could possibly, and, and this is an expression for pride, what could possibly cause them to be proud about this? Well, don't you see how liberal we are in our thinking? Don't you see how accepting we are of different people's lifestyles? Isn't it wonderful that we can look at that and say, well, we have freedom in Christ. You don't have freedom to sin. Here's what he says should be the case. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. The word that's used there for mourning is a word that is used in relation to the death of a loved one. Why does a church mourn when a person is in sin? The reason is God told us that sin brings forth death. And a person involved in a sinful lifestyle is playing with death. It's only God's mercy that keeps us alive when we sin. And so you have this issue of Life being destroyed, it would be better to mourn. There's the issue of losing effectiveness as a church. There's the issue of the inability to reach people for Christ who can set free from the bondage of sin when we trust in him for our forgiveness and our eternal life through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And when we come to Christ in faith, we become new creatures. What we were apart from Christ, dead in trespasses and sins, has now changed and we are alive in Christ. And so when a brother is involved in sin, he's going back to the old way. You should rather mourn and, and have the right spirit when it's time to bring discipline. It's got to be with the right motives. As we go on, we find in another passage of Scripture, in First Corinth, or pardon me, First Peter chapter two, verse nine, what we are: we are a, a, a royal priesthood. We are a peculiar people in that we are unique in Christ. We are uh, a generation of kings. There is there is a a virtue now that exists among the body of Christ and. When sin is involved in the camp, the purity of that camp begins to diminish. Do you remember how thoroughly God cleansed Israel when they sinned? When false prophets arose, what was the consequence for being a false prophet? Death! This is where people get this idea, oh, the God of the Old Testament was such a, a cruel and harsh God. No, he was a God of purity who understood, <laughs> he understood, he knows better than we do that the presence of sin in the camp just takes a short time before it begins to spread. And he said, rather than have my whole body of people fall into sinful behavior, 
You have to get rid of those who would introduce that sinful behavior. If you were a false prophet, you died. If you worshipped idols, you died. For the purity of the people of Israel, who were those to give testimony to the true and the living God. They were monotheists in a polytheistic pagan world. And their purity was vital. Do you also understand that an incorrigible son, if a son refused to obey, and apparently old enough to be a drunk, you know what the parents did? They brought him before the elders of the people of Israel and had him stoned to death. To the Lord, the purity of his people is very important. That same philosophy moves into the church, but not with the same type of consequence. Now the church has responsibility to bring a discipline with the idea of maintaining the purity of the body and also with sincerity and with truth. Look down with me, if you will, to verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven. Now, you remember, he's using this expression of leaven as being the sin that begins to permeate the whole lump. He says, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. In other words, when it's necessary to bring discipline against a member of the church... You don't look at that person with, with hatred and with a delight in seeing them squirm and suffer. No, instead, you do it with unleavened bread, without sin in your own heart, with sincerity and with truth, with a transparency that is clear in what is going on, with not only that, but keeping things in the open so that the truth prevails. And the Lord says, these are the motives with which you exercise discipline. And then he tells them this. You must do it for the right reasons. When we talk about church discipline, there can be discipline at a variety of different levels. A person who perhaps has uh, some failure in their life that is manifested by sinful behavior... Depending on the nature of that, it may be sufficient to have that person withdraw from an area of ministry until that sin, that problem is dealt with. It may be that a person is referred to counseling in order to bring their thinking into line with what God's Word has to say. But there are times that the extreme discipline of the church needs to be applied. And folks, you need to understand, the most a church can do is excommunicate a person. We don't inflict physical punishment on a sinful brother or sister. All we can do is put them out of the fellowship. And there's a reason for that that we're going to look at in just a few moments. When we put them out of the fellowship, we must do it only for the reasons that the Lord has indicated. Church discipline, though it is ignored by many, is abused by others because they see it as a means by which they can get rid of somebody who doesn't agree with them. Do you understand how it can be abused both ways? 
This can go both ways. So the Lord makes it clear for us. Listen to the reasons for which a person should be excommunicated. The first is for teaching erroneous doctrine. Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than that you have received, let him be accursed. He goes on in uh, the book of Second Thessalonians to say this, if you're a lazy busybody, I was going to test you all today. I was going to find out who the busybodies are. Do you know how I was going to do it? Should I do it? No? Okay. You don't want me to do it? Okay. She thinks it wouldn't be wise. So here goes. <laughs> no, because you're all going to understand what the deal is. Some people have a problem. Oh, this goes back to the questionable things like tattoos. My wife has a tattoo. <gasps> but it's only a temporary tattoo that the kids got for field day. And if you're going to get a tattoo, you probably don't want something in bright red that says field day. <laughs> she was going to have it put on her face until she found out that it lasts for seven days. <laughs> I better throw this in too, even if you shower. Okay, so... <laughs> Here would be this tattoo. Well, instead she has it on her arm. And I was going to say, honey, I want you to see, show people your tattoo and then find out how many people go out and say, did you hear the pastor's wife has a tattoo? That's a busybody. Listen to what the Lord says in Second Thessalonians. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. They just walk around giving tales, true or not true. They spread information instead of working which would keep them out of trouble. There's another. If a person is divisive within the body, listen to what it says in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. You warn him twice, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. That person is to be excommunicated have nothing to do with him anymore. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, there's another reason, or covetous, there's another reason, or an idolater, there's another reason, or a reveler, I mean, reviler, there's another reason, or a drunkard, there's another reason, or an extortioner, one who plunders other people and robs. Not even to eat with such a person. God says these are to be judged. 
But then he tells us this. It's not enough just to judge them. Now you have to take action. And here's where the breakdown comes. People will acknowledge sin in the camp, but they won't take action against it. And what is it that the Lord calls us to? Look at verse 4. He says, it is the church's responsibility to take this action when it comes to excommunication. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, and then verse 5 goes on to tell us what the penalty is to this individual who has been immoral. Notice that the authority is only under Christ's authority. We don't have the authority to arbitrarily bring judgment. It's what Christ gives the church authority to do. And that's why he says there in that fourth verse, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then what? Then you exercise severe discipline. And this is as severe as it can be. Verse 5. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What is the severity of the judgment? It is the complete cutting off of fellowship with believers. Now, folks, here's where the rub comes. Churches that I've been involved in have exercised discipline on very rare occasions and generally because of immorality. But somehow, when that discipline is exercised, there are those who believe, oh, this is so unloving, this is so unkind, as if God is going to make a mistake in telling us what he wants us to do. And they will still meet with a person who is under church discipline. They will have them over for dinner. They will meet with them for coffee. They will continue to have fellowship. The Lord says, no, you put that person out so that Satan can get a hold of them and they will learn very quickly what it is to be apart from the blessing and the protection of the fellowship of believers. We think that it is unloving To do this to someone, it is exactly what God commands. And you know what? Churches are just as guilty of this as individuals. One of the questions we ask on our church membership application is, have you ever been disciplined by a church? If you have, we need to make sure that you've made it right before you become a member here. You know what happens with a lot of people? Let's say they they get disciplined at grace. You know what they'll do? They'll go someplace else. And people welcome them with open arms. Oh, it's so good to see you. And they walk in carrying their sin with them without having dealt with that sin. And they infect that body and they never make things right in the body that they left. What churches ought to do is say this. If you've ever come under the authority of church discipline, you need to go back and repent and take care of that before you ever think of joining another church. But that's not the society in which we live. So, who's going to do it? We will. I can't speak for anybody else, but we will. No association. Look at verse 9. I write to you in my epistle not to keep company 
with sexually immoral people. Look at verse 11. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Look at verse 13. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. That's pretty severe. May I ask you a question? Does God mean what he says? Does that mean you don't have company with a person who is under church discipline? It's exactly what it means. Does it mean you don't eat with them? That's exactly what it means. Why? Oh, because we're going to get even. No, because there is an umbrella of protection within the body of Christ where the Lord recognizes under the authority of the church a protective element to protect us from Satan's attacks. And if we don't exercise this discipline, we open ourselves to the attacks of Satan and consequently the church becomes a target for the evil one. When God's directive is this, allow the person who is living in sin to be put out so that Satan, if necessary, will destroy their flesh as a demonstration of God's grace, which assures their salvation in the final day. It's better to die physically than it is to not know the Lord. And you put them out, and then the pressure of Satan starts falling on them. And that's the way it's supposed to be. Tough stuff, huh? Not the typical thing you expect on a Sunday sermon. But it is what God's word says. So here it is. Now, here it comes. It's the church's responsibility to judge a sinning brother. It's the church's responsibility to inflict discipline upon a sinning brother. And it's the church's responsibility to forgive a repentant brother. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And there's a question that arises in this second chapter because it appears, though we are not absolutely certain, it appears that the man who was excommunicated from the church in Corinth was so impacted in a positive way that he repented of his sin and now the church had an additional responsibility. Listen to it. This is beautiful. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 3. And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those for whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. Not to be too severe, 
this now now here's he's he's taken us back this as you read those verses you have to read them in the context of what he's now saying this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. If a person comes to repentance and they acknowledge their sin and they deal with whatever can be dealt with, it is the church's responsibility to forgive and welcome them back. By the way, that's the purpose of the discipline. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. Why? Because we are subject to temptation and we can fall too. Who in here is exempt from the possibility of sin? None of us. So what do we have? We have a realization of who we are and when a brother confesses and forsakes his sin, he shall have mercy. And so we forgive. In the seventh verse... Turning from sin demands forgiveness. The eighth verse, love for the brethren demands forgiveness. The ninth verse, obedience to God demands forgiveness. The eleventh verse, protection from Satan's schemes demands forgiveness. Now on that last one, you need to understand this. If a church is unwilling to forgive a repentant brother, Satan uses that in the church. And he brings harm to it. What's the end result of all this? Is there anything good that comes out of this? Absolutely. Six things. Here they are. The purity of the church is maintained. Secondly, brethren are caused to fear sin's consequences. By the way, you know why people don't fear discipline? They don't see it happening. You know, have you ever heard a mother in the store with a screaming child, not because the child is hurt or anything, they're throwing a tantrum. And the mother says, if you don't stop that, I'm taking you outside and we're going home. And the kid bellows. I'm telling you right now, you need to stop that. And the kid continues to scream. If you don't stop, I'm going to make you sorry. And the kid continues to scream. And then you watch and they go out and nothing's happened. Nothing happens. You know what happens when a church exercises church discipline? It's like the old country judge who sentenced the horse thief to death. And the horse thief said, you're going to hang me because I stole the horse? And the judge said, no. I'm going to hang you so other men don't steal horses. You know what happens when a church exercises discipline? People begin to pay attention to their own behavior. Because I don't want to go through that. Thirdly, our sensitivity to sin is increased. Listen, you and I know this. We are desensitized to sin today. 
we, we see things that are absolute sinful behavior and we laugh at it. Two people having sex without being married on television and we laugh at the humor. Homosexuality being exploited and pushed in movies and on shows. Ask Kirk Cameron about this. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And we become so desensitized that we think things that are clear violations of God's word are okay. And they're not. When you exercise discipline, people become very sensitive to sin. Fourthly, a fallen brother can be restored, not ignored. Fifthly, a testimony is communicated to the world. Oh, the world will probably say, who do they think they are at first? But down deep inside, they're saying, man, alive. Those people really mean business. They really mean business. And finally, our love for one another is demonstrated. Why would you ever exercise discipline on a person? It's because you love them and you want the best for them. And you love the church and you want the best for it. And when you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you want His kingdom to be furthered. I'm not going to spend any more time on this subject until we get to the next passage that deals with it. Do you all... I'm going to do something different. Do you have any questions about what we just talked about? Balcony? Anybody? Yes. No, as a matter of fact, just the, the Lord said this in that same chapter. He said, I didn't exhort you to withdraw from unsaved because if you did, unsaved people are immoral. They are extortioners. They are drunkards. And you know what the Lord wants us to do with those people? He wants us to reach them with the love of Christ. But when a brother who has already been reached with the love of Christ does these things, they're going back into the old way that we have been delivered from. Now we've got to help them realize that's wrong. Good question. Thanks. Deb, oh, okay. What about a family member? Does anybody have an answer for that? (laughs) There is a situation that we have become aware of where a church needs to take discipline against an immoral young lady. But that person is also part of a Christian family. And how does the family then respond to that person? I know this. The family has to respond with a reaffirmation of love. There has to be continual prayer for that individual. And I think from a family point of view, boy, don't hold me to this, but I think from a family point of view, they need to keep some contact so that they can continue to try to influence that young lady back into a pure lifestyle and be restored. And yet, it's a tough one. I don't have the answers for everything. There's one more back here, and then we're going to stop. Um, 
Thank you. I, I appreciate your sharing that. Could I just add something to it? So long as I am true to the word of God, you should obey. But I, I have nothing in myself that is worthy to be followed. It's only what the Lord has said. And so do you know what your responsibility is? To examine the word to see if what I've said is true. Thank you. Let's stand. Oh, sorry. We don't have time. And Preston, your question is going to be too hard for me anyway. I already know that. <laughs> we'll, we'll deal privately, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and its truth and for the impact that it has on our lives. Cause us to be a people of the word that we might glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.